0: Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where we have a different perspective this week. Normally we have people who are historians or, or trained in history, Today, we don't have that. We are very excited to have somebody trained in geography to talk about a new book from the University of Regina Press entitled The Magnificent Nahani, The Struggle to Protect a Wild Place. And he is nearly live from Waterloo, Ontario. Happy to be joined on the phone by Gordon Nelson. Welcome to the show.
1: Oh, well, Thank you very much. Good to be here.
0: So Good this
1: about the book,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this book, too, because I have no familiarity with the high north, the, the, the territories, I've never been up there at all. But you look at some of the images of the Nahani National Park and the reserve and they're, they're breathtaking images. And so for you to be able to write this book about this place is really kind of cool. And, and I'm excited to, to delve into it. But before we do that, where did this idea come from? You know, as we, you mentioned, you're a geographer. So where does the idea particularly of the Nahani as the subject of a book come from
1: say there's probably several steps on it, but the most immediate one was uh, I have done a lot of work in the north over the years um, I was uh, president of the uh, National and Provincial Parks Association, which subsequently became the Canadian Parks and Wilderness society i I was Doing that work in the early 70s, and that was a time when the oil development was really getting underway. There was a lot of expansive ideas about what to do in the north, and uh, I got involved from from the perspective of a proposal that the federal government made to establish three parks up north three major parks Uituk on uh, South Baffin Island, Nahani, which we're going to talk about, and Kluane in the southwestern Yukon, all of which are remarkable places. And uh, they're interesting physically, they're interesting uh, historically. And uh, I, I went on and, and I, I was fortunate enough to be a, a resources advisor to the uh, Inuit Tapirisad in their first uh, uh, land claim uh, proposal, uh, which didn't work out uh, as well as it might have, mainly I think because of the need for more attention to local uh village concerns and local group concerns, but which was part of the process that eventually led to Nunavut. And I did some other things in uh, in the NWT on land use regulations and so on, and I was involved in the Yukon pipeline assessment proposal. So I was fortunate in going to many places in the north, and I heard quite frequently about the Nahani. But I never got a chance to go there, it's a a little bit uh, difficult to get to, not so much now as it was then. So anyway, when the park proposals came up, and it took them a long time, the park was first proposed in 1976, and and, uh, it was um, an imperfect uh, proposal in that uh, it ran into a number of difficulties, one with mining groups, uh, and another which continue. And another one with the uh, indigenous people themselves, who didn't like some of the proposals that were put forward for uh, surrendering their land and making it all publicly owned, and also for giving up uh, uh, all their traditional activities in a pure wilderness model, no human beings involved. So uh, when, when, when I, I followed this struggle from '76 until it was finally expanded to a watershed scale, with the cooperation of the Natives in 2009. And I remained active with the conservation community. And uh, when it was done and there was a big celebration about it, it was a remarkable achievement. I began to think, well, you know, this is another story that's remarkable and has a lot of lessons in it, a lot of things people can learn about. And if somebody doesn't write something about it, it's just going to recede into the background and be forgotten like so many others are. I mean, Khrichan established 10 parks or 11 parks uh, between the late 60s and the uh, mid-70s or late 70s. And there, to my knowledge, there's virtually no story about how those things were established and uh, how things were worked out with uh, local people and so on. And some of them were rather difficult to do. There was a lot of, uh, of uh, opposition and concern from others, so I thought, "Well, I'll, 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 uh, I'll see how it goes. I'll write an article." And of course, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's how it goes. That's how it always that, starts. That's that, how they get yeah. you.
1: <laughs> the uh, the uh, the article, of course, expanded into. Uh, into what I've uh, now produced. and uh, I went into the Kanahani for the first time. I did a raft trip for about seven days uh, and uh, met a guy, Neil Hartling, who's uh, quite a remarkable guy. He's uh, He runs the uh, Nahani River Adventures uh, trips and he uh, has been active up there since the 80s, very knowledgeable. And so I learned a lot from him and others on the trip, and I did the usual uh, trips to archives, and uh, I drew my own experience. and So that's how the book came about.
0: And what's interesting about it to me is that the book is listed on the University of Regina site, not as a history book. Uh, if If you look at it, it's under Environmental Conservation and Protection, Territories in Nunavut and Wilderness. It's not under history, and I would assume that's in part because... You're not a historian by, by training, uh, and when you worked at the, the various schools, the universities that you worked at, you, you were never in a history department. But from listening to you talk, it seems like you adopted a very historical methodology on this.
1: It's historical ecology. That's the uh, traditional word uh, for it now. And You raise a very important uh, point uh, uh one one of the things that that I wasn't uh it didn't warm me to history in my younger days uh was the lack of uh, awareness and interest in environment environment was seen as uh as an easy way out uh, you could find an explanation for something by just opting to some kind of uh, physical change environmental change and uh a lot of historians thought that was too easy. And uh, the, there's, there was also the in, interest in historians in the cultural side of things and the human side of things and leaders and in, individual leaders in the role. But environmental history or historical ecology began to come to the fore, I think, just about the time a lot of this park stuff was un, un- unraveling. I think Justice Berger, who conducted... Uh, a remarkable public consultation program around the first proposal for the Mackenzie Valley pipeline was in many ways uh, a person who motivated this change because he as a lawyer I guess uh, with some historic background just drew on all the elements in the history of the Mackenzie Valley and the people in it to create a uh, a picture that uh, is Interactive and does involve people interacting with the environment. So I, I began to pursue that in my own work, but I called the Land Use History and Landscape Change, and it grew out of my interest in what happened in, in uh, Banff National Park. And it's been intriguing to see environmental history and historical ecology become uh, uh, so uh, so important. There were, there, there's some well-known books that, uh, that bring it out, a guy called William Cronin, who is a Yale historian now, did a study. What was it called? Land use, land use change in New England, something like that, in the uh, in the early 80s. And it was a revolutionary book in, in the American historical sense because it started people thinking about what he called in the book historical ecology. And then we got a guy called John Riley here in uh, Ontario who. Uh, is actually a biologist, but who, uh, in working with uh, landowners and in looking at how changes came about in Ontario and in thinking about how to conserve the escarpment, got involved in the interaction between settlement and forest clearing and uh, sorting out of species. And so he's written a remarkable book. It's called uh, uh, The Once and Future Great Lakes Country, Uh, published by McGill, McGill McGill-Queens, I believe. So this is now a fairly established field, but it's a field that's essentially interdisciplinary. Uh, The historians, I think, are central to it, and I think they're beginning to realize that. But you get anthropologists involved, biologists involved, you get geographers involved. There are people who are fascinated by this... uh, interaction between economy and society and, uh, social things and uh, floods and earthquakes and uh, forest succession and soil types and soil exhaustion and all those things so it's a really exciting field and uh, it's uh, it's not still not widely known among uh, many uh, readers of history, but I hope it will be more widely
0: known. As you say, things are start, things are changing. I mean, our, our friends over at Niche and, and that organization with environmental history, and there are environmental history courses at schools across the country, and, and there are more and more environmental historians. So, So I think that is changing with historians. And at the same time, as you mentioned, it's very interdisciplinary. And the thing that's really I think essential about that is it's impossible for really any discipline to ignore the environment. I mean, we all have to, we all live in the world, right? And the, the, the environment and the way the f- landscape and the physical world is changed and used is important to all disciplines. So it is a very interdisciplinary sector that, that, that is open to investigation
1: now, I think that it's something that I contemplate from time to time, and you must in the course of talking to people uh, about the kind of work we're talking about now. Um, the um, There tends to be a sort of a, a, a paradigm, as we would call it, a, a fix on the way uh, uh, appropriate interpretations of knowledge and approaches to knowledge are made. I think for for a long time, it was a disciplinary fix and and there was the silo fix. So people tended to define what was appropriate to each discipline, and try and draw these boundaries. And uh, when I was going through that was uh, when I was big, acquiring my various levels of education. That was very very true until I got to Hopkins. When I got to Johns Hopkins, I found a different environment. It was a very freewheeling environment. The, people were intermixing and uh, I think that sort of thing has spread and I think the silos have begun to break down and you see it in the physical sciences now in the universities and you also see it in the uh, in uh, economy economic programs or anthropology in particular which has always had a bit of a bent that way anyway and I think it's a good thing now what it means in terms of organizing knowledge uh, for learning by university students is another matter. You're, uh, I understand you're involved in Canadian Studies and uh, Indigenous Studies joint program. Well, that to me is a good example of crossing these boundaries, of crossing these silos, and the story becomes much more coherent, and I think uh, much more interesting, much more realistic, uh, much more attractive uh, when
0: told that way yeah I agree. I mean, the more perspectives you have, certainly the better the better the story is. Uh, so speaking of that story, let's delve into Nahani and the specifics of it a little bit. So the park itself, if, if you look on, a, on the map, if you just Google it a, at home, the the park and the reserve is on the border between Yukon and Northwest Territories is how it's showing with, I think, the entirety of it, though, in the Northwest Territories. That's
1: right. Yeah. So and, uh, the Flat River, the, the western uh, section, actually uh, just taps into the mountains along the border there.
0: Okay. So so the yeah so it, and it's 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 I have to say it, it looks huge, too. Yeah, like, it is
1: thirty-five thousand square kilometers. I think that's yeah, about it.
0: Yeah. So that's pretty. That's pretty huge.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is.
0: So. So so when you sort of first dove into this, like, where did the initial push for a national park in this area come from?
1: Well, that was something I was quite in, interested in. Um, one of the people who made the Nahani famous was Raymond Patterson, who uh, was a bit of an adventurer. And he wrote a a book called The Dangerous River, uh, which anybody who's interested in honey should still read it. It was published in 1954 and 1955, but it's still uh, on active sale now. It's been republished a number of times. But anyway, he got a lot of people interested in it, and then some other people came along. A guy called Finley Hunter, he did some writing on it. And uh, another guy called Dick Turner wrote a book on the Nahani back in the seventies, um, early seventies, and so and and it became a bit of a the of a, a place to go among the more adventurous in our society. I would say people would raft it some fast rivers, some rapids. Other people would go to see it, the Virginia Falls, uh, which was named after Finley Hunter's daughter in which many people resent to this day because he's an outlander. That's a magnificent place. So that drew the attention of, uh, of a lot of people, but none of these guys really said, let's protect it. It was interesting. Many of them were hunters and adventurers, and it just wasn't in the air at the time to protect it. But then um, the first notice I got of a potential park there was by a guy called Oldham, E.G. Oldham, and he was a super. Advisor, superintendent of wildlife in uh, the NWT in the uh, in the uh, early '40s, and uh, he made a proposal, amazingly, brief, a very very uh, interesting proposal that the Nahani should be uh, set up as a national park. And he made the proposal after uh, he had visited it because there were supposed to be a lot of wolves running around, and uh, there was a suggestion that it might be. They might be called, in. some of the trappers uh, who who, who uh, would benefit from such a call were supporting it, as well as others. But anyway, he went back and he wrote to Ottawa and to his uh, superior, and he said, "This place is remarkable. It's uh, relatively uh, very very wild. It has all kinds of um, different species in it: grizzly bears, caribou, elk." He thought there were three different or four different kinds of uh, mountain sheep. Uh, That was a proliferation of species that wasn't born later on. So they set up a committee sometime later. I don't know that somebody would really have to delve into the historic documents if they still exist. And it was a parliamentary committee, and and they uh, decided it was worthwhile to pursue it. But nothing very much happened until uh, the 60s, and then in the 60s there was a lot of pressure uh, for oil development, and uh, McKenzie proposals were coming forward. So people were concerned some of these, about some of these special places. So some guys in the uh, in the national parks and some people in conservation organizations began to develop uh, a proposal, and uh, the proposal was put forward, as I said uh, uh, in my book, in uh, in 70, 71, 72, and it was for three parks Kluane, Nahani, and the Uatuk, which is on the southeast corner of Baffin Island. And so the thing went from there. Uh, once the uh, parks guys are uh, in that area anyway, were, were announcing something, it really meant they were quite committed to trying to do it. And the public participation consisted of getting uh, responses and. Uh, trying to accommodate them as much as possible to the original proposal and then going ahead with it. And the federal government also had uh, a very forceful, if I can put it that way, kind of approach to decision-making. And so they uh, proceeded to uh, establish the park, but as a reserve, a national park reserve in 1976. And that was because of the objections of the uh, First Nations people at Dachau and the others to... uh, one, the wilderness concept. The idea at the time was that wilderness was devoid of human activity or very little sign of human activity and that human activity was not appropriate to wilderness. It's an idea that's been modified considerably since. Um, and so they didn't like that because they had been using this place and their ancestors had been using it for thousands of years. And second, they had to give up complete ownership and more or less control of policy. And that was a central issue in the whole thing for the next 20 years. And finally, uh, through a lot of uh, astute uh, uh, consultation and uh, careful concern and input by outfits like the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, who began to work very closely with the First Nations people, as well as Park Scanner, were, we're kind of an intermediary and a spokesman for the public, uh, and they informed the public. Uh, it uh, finally was uh, expanded uh, to uh, watershed scale, which was one of the original objectives. And in addition, a lot of compromises were made, agreements perhaps, uh, to uh, uh, try and modulate the proposal to make it more acceptable to and inclusive of uh, First Nations people. And so there's some hunting allowed in their traditional uh, activities, sacred sites, trapping, a little bit of trapping, things like that. But it's a huge place, as you said, and uh, that sort of thing has been going on for a long time, and uh, the uh, First Nations people have not essentially impaired what's called the ecological integrity of the park. That is the fact that the ecosystems that have been there for a long time, the plants, animals, and processes that have been there for a long time are still there. And uh, so uh, that that was a bit of a groundbreaker, along with some other stuff that happened in Nunavut uh, with the Inuit when they were working out how to do parks after they got the Nunavut proposal through in I think nineteen ninety five.
0: Yeah, because that's one of the really interesting parts of this is that you know we live in a a country that frankly is is largely based on a colonial framework, and now here's a case where. There's, I think, a very, I think the desire to create a national park comes from a good place, to preserve the land. But at the same time, there are constituent groups that are there that, within the broader scope of the colonial history of this country, in my opinion, are right would be rightfully skeptical of a federal authority coming in and trying to establish some sort of management over that land that they have used for thousands and thousands of years and it strikes me that that the word struggle in the title the subtitle of this book from from yeah. what i can tell that that would be based on that those discussions
1: yes i think uh, the struggle was uh, i kept wondering what the proper subtitle was for the book and then i realized that it it's a struggle all the way through. If we just take the uh, the concepts involved, you see, this becomes very fundamental because the very words that are being used to evaluate uh, the area are loaded. Uh, uh, wilderness, uh, which was uh, the fundamental aim and ideal of uh, Parks Canada and, uh, and many other conservationists, was was a kind of mythical idea in the sense that. Uh, As archaeology has shown over the last 20 years or so, maybe longer, uh, it turns out that uh, indigenous people have occupied some parts of of, uh, our landscape for a very, very long time, and some of them uh, were probably there up until they were hit by diseases or fur trade or other kinds of things that uh, more or less removed them or reduced their impact on the landscape. But has a long history of uh, human use of these areas. So the, re, the, the the picture as it's revealed as you look at the land use history in the area is a, a long-continued use and occupants by uh, uh, Native people. And uh, the attempt to reconcile that with some of these ideas like pristine wilderness, which were essentially really U.S. ideas. They were... Uh, they were views of landscape that were diffused to uh, to Canada, beginning way back around 1900 with the first superintendent of Parks Canada, J.B. Hark. And there's a struggle in other ways, the, uh, the, uh, the struggle for e- economic benefits, the struggle to uh, reconcile this within the, the, the conservation community, many of which were in favor of a compromise, and others who wanted to be diehards and go for uh, strict wilderness. Same thing with the Native people. The Native people and the indigenous people tend to be looked at as a kind of blank slate. We haven't got to the point yet of really recognizing them in everyday terms as, as, uh, as highly political people like the rest of us are. You know, some agree with some things, some with others. So the, the uh, First Nations people uh, have struggled with that, and they're still struggling with it. There's a proposal for a mine on Prairie Creek there, which is probably the main threat to the park right now. And the uh, uh, there, there is, as I understand it, I haven't been up there for a couple of years, but there is, as I understand it, uh, some uh, difference of opinion in the H.O. community over whether that mine should proceed or not.
0: Because that was something I was going to ask you, and getting back to something you said a bit earlier, is you mentioned that the indigenous groups that were there, they were not threatening the ecological... Uh, state of of this area, and yet the desire to have a national park is largely based on the idea of preserving the land. So yeah, th- I was yeah. so it seemed like a disconnect to me as to who is threatening the land if it's not the people who are living there and using it, and then why is there the need then to go in, and in a, in a way that I could see people thinking it in sort of this almost patriarchal or or, or sorry, this paternal idea of the government has to come in and protect this land when it's not really under threat from the people who are living there. So, so where was that threat coming from?
1: Well, there's a, there's a lot to what you say, but it's an exceedingly uh, complex thing. What you're getting into is the history of ideas, which I think uh, I did not anticipate that I would, uh, I would find myself uh, struggling with that uh, as I proceeded with the book, but uh, that, that turned out to be the case, and there's still quite a bit of uncertainty about it, but there's some of that, there are a number of factors that contribute to the fact that the Nahani is uh, probably the closest uh, to a, uh, what you might call, a high, highly natural condition or a highly wild condition of any area in Canada. The one is it's isolation, you know, it's uh, close, but for physical reasons, distant from settlement and ease of mining. There were attempts to explore for gold uh, from the beginning of the Klondike uh, Rush, which is not very far away on the other side of the mountains. And there were a lot of the first people who went in there who were uh, Caucasian anyway or white were um, uh, veterans of the Klondike Gold Rush who... Uh, swept over a lot of those streams under incredibly hard conditions to try and find gold and that persisted and uh, up until the time the park was established in uh, 1976 the first small park so the and the native people uh, in the midst of all that uh, have uh, have continued to hunt and trap the way they have but there's some anthropologists who've been working in there and worked with them or with people around them who are a The generally same broad kin groups who have found that they do uh, traditionally practice conservation. Um, A lot of of, of indigenous leaders will tell you now that they're not, it's not reasonable to view them as. massive killers of wildlife, because uh, the wildlife in many ways are the basis of their economy and their well-being, so they always had ways of dispensing or handling these uh, pressures, the balance between use and, uh, and conservation. So they had, uh, you know, the, everything was infused with life, according to one of the, uh, the anthropologists. So the rocks had a spirit, the genius loci uh, trees had a spirit, the wildlife had a spirit, and you had to propitiate those by uh, appropriate ceremonies in advance. Uh, they did think in, uh, in some of the native groups in, the, in Alaska, like having nets that had different uh, uh, perforation sizes so that they could select for the fish that they caught in the nets. They had beliefs about the uh, inherent efficacy of, first, uh, of some animals. To uh, to right to life, and uh, they uh, if they were diminishing, they would uh, reduce the pressure on them. So there were a lot of uh, of uh, native uh, uh, mechanisms and attempts to try and preserve uh, what was going on. I'm I'm working now a similar book it's uh, it's it, it, <laughs> i don't know whether it will come to fruition or not but it's uh, on, on on the idea that cities should be wilder and that we should be spending more time trying to build the wild back into the cities in that sense you run up against the same thing where uh, uh, indigenous people are seen and it's in for a blank a blank sympathetic uh, simplistic sense as uh, all of one group, all doing the same thing, but inherent in all of these things were a lot of practices that they used to try and conserve environment. And so, as you say, uh, they were there for thousands of years, and they didn't uh, do that much harm to the environment, but at the same time, in fact, if anything, they may have sustained it. But uh, at the same time, the the area they were in was isolated. It was hard to get to. They probably didn't go into it as frequently as they could, uh, there were also native people, uh, uh, the Kaska, who were uh, in on the uh, Yukon side, who were competing with them to some degree for terrain, and so they had a kind of ecozone between the two groups that uh, you ventured into at your own risk, uh, of one side to another. So that kind of mechanism, an inherent ecological mechanism, helped to protect the area as well. So it's a complex story, but. The 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 idea that that the the government had to remove the people to protect the environment, which is inherent in the wilderness idea, uh, was central to the eventual solution to uh, the watershed scale park in 2009. Because a lot of the parks Canada people and a lot of people in the public had to be uh, made aware of the fact that. Conservation was not inherently a uh, Caucasian or a white idea. It was something that had been long-lasting in the indigenous people as well.
0: Hmm. Well, and looking at the map here in terms of you know the, the idea to protect this land, it it doesn't seem as I sort of zoom in on Google here and and look at the borders of it. It, it there doesn't seem to necessarily be natural ba- a natural boundary on all the sides, and it's certainly not a square or just a, an easy shape it's it's sort of jagged all around so in in that sense you mentioned it's hard to get into and maybe not that many people went into it but how were these how was the actual decision made on what constituted the, the actual park itself and then in that according to google at least in looking at the map sort of in the mid Eastern part of it, there's a gap, a small gap. I don't know if that's actually re- real and not part of the park, but that's there too. But just in terms of setting the borders, what, what was the that process like?
1: Yeah, well, this is a really good question. It's referred to as a watershed park, uh, with the implication that uh, boundaries conform to the watershed of the River and its tributaries. But in point of fact, it was modified. There was, in fact, a broad consultation process, and a, a group actually formed of uh, DHO and Indigenous people, and uh, Parks Canada people, wilderness uh, Canadian Parks and Wilderness types, and local people to uh, to have a look at the boundaries. And uh, to try and reach a consensus. And I, I, I have not had access to uh, a lot of the detailed documents, and I doubt if they ever really still exist. But the back gap you talk about, for example, is probably uh, around the mine, which pre existed the establishment of the park. And when negotiations were made with the mining companies which had claims in the park, Um, That one was uh, retained because uh, it had a fair amount of potential. It was supported, as I understand it, by the NW Territories government um, uh, as a viable economic development prospect. So uh, it's still there, uh, and the boundaries around the mine enclose this gap in the park, uh, and it's a part of the process that was needed to get the park that they really, in many ways, almost had to compromise on that at the time.
0: Yeah, and actually, as but, you uh, sorry, as you say that, I zoom in, and you're right. It's the Prairie Creek Mine. Yeah, uh, that's that's, right. that's there. It's not included. Yeah, so that's that's pretty interesting. But uh...
1: so there, this this is a um, a zinc copper. It's a complex igneous. Uh, a rock formation and it's at some depth you have to go down if i think i'm correct if a few hundred feet to get to it and uh i may be off on that but it's fairly deep and the the minerals you can get out of it are copper zinc lead silver uh and a moment the big interest is in zinc and uh I know you're an avid follower of zinc prices on the stock exchange, aren't
0: you? John? Uh, naturally, so, <laughs> of course.
1: <laughs> so uh, you, you will realize that uh, that the zinc prices uh, had gone to quite a low ebb, and there was some feeling on the part of some conservation groups that it might be bought out from the company. But uh, now the zinc prices have gone uh, way up, and uh, the stock price has gone way up, and it's... Uh, probably a bit too expensive to buy out now uh so it uh they're they're set up to mine uh and uh they're they're, they're on the floodplain and they have a they have actually done some mining uh and testing uh, although i don't think there's any commercial production yet uh because they can't get the stuff out uh but um uh, the, the uh, mercury and other uh, uh, chemicals are used in the uh, treatment of the ore and in the production of the mineral. And so the potential for that to pollute uh, Prairie Creek is, uh, is fairly strong, uh, or at least possible. And uh the other proposal that they're working on with now is they're, trying, they're building a mine. There's an environmental assessment going on, and they're going to build a, an access road, which will go from Nahani Butte on the Lierd River uh, through the mountains and into the Prairie Creek Valley so that the ore can be brought out. But where it will go from there is uh, is a bit of a mystery to me. Apparently there's some proposal to truck it all the way down to... Uh, the interior of bc or to the west coast wow. so it's a very uh, curious kind of uh, a proposal and it is something that apparently has got uh divided the uh, uh the first nations people a little bit the other boundary in that same area is uh, is was extended beyond the uh nahani river watershed boundary because of uh, the karst topography that is there. There's a um, guy called Derek Ford, who's a geomorphologist and geographer, physical geographer at McMaster. He's retired now, but he did an awful lot of work up there under the sponsorship of Parks Canada to explore the caves. Uh, Mahani is very rich in caves, and uh, in fact, some of these caves uh, have uh, been there for... Uh, millions of years, and uh, some uh, actually contain uh, remains of sheep, uh, sheep skeletons, and so on that have been dated back to. Uh, I think the one date was 2,400 BC or something. Wow. These, these are animals that got caught in the caves and couldn't get out. Uh, and so he was. Uh, that's an interesting combination of a of a of a, of a, a biological and a geological and a glaciological story. So he was taken in to do some research on that, and uh, he's very concerned, and many other people are very concerned, that a lot of the drainage in that area is uh, is uh, subterranean drainage because the car system, the water comes down, it hits the surface, and uh, limestone, which under which is underneath cars, dissolves, and so the water percolates down into these underground streams. and. Uh, and it carves out channels beneath the surface. Uh, it also moves uh, the, through the uh, bedrock and into the river. So you could get quite a quite a, an impact if you uh, began to pollute the, uh, the water in that area. A lot of the water in the river probably comes from the cars in the first place. Right. So uh, they decided, when they set the park up, to extend the boundary beyond the watershed to encapsulate as much of this karst terrain as they could. Another guy called John Weaver, who did a lot of research towards the end of the park establishment on the boundaries, uh, also found some uh, limestone uh, beyond the, uh, the northern, northeastern corner of the park. And so in the end, they established it beyond there to try and incorporate this park on an area that's called the Ram Plateau, which is, there's some pictures of it in, in, the, in the, my book. Uh, which are air photographs or, or photographs taken from uh, high, high vantage point. So you can see these remarkable valleys and rivers that uh, have been carved out of this karst. So that in itself became a kind of unexpected feature of the park proposal at the end, and uh, it was incorporated into the 209 expansion. Uh, on the other side in uh, in on the yukon side uh, part of the uh, of, of the flat creek proposal uh, is if i remember correctly inside uh, the boundary is inside the watershed and that's because there was a big tungsten mine there for a while and it operated off and on for years when prices were good it operated when prices were not so good it tended to slow down um But apparently, uh, I'm told from good sources that there's a lot of debris around there and there is some pollution and the pollution is in the Flat Creek and uh, there's some big concerns about that. But the mining people were, uh, and and their supporters, there's many in government and and business, were able to get uh, that section left out at a time when it looked viable still from an economic point of view. So the boundary there was adjusted for that reason. Hmm. And then there's some there's a park, Natchito Park, which is a Satu Park, Satu First Nations Park on the North Park. And uh, that was to be a separate park, Joe National Park. And uh, in the workup to that, the, some uh, decisions were made that are pretty questionable, because there's sections in there that were left out uh, within the upper watershed that are, prime grizzly bear habitat, prime uh, areas for uh, caribou. And so the conservation groups are still working to try and, uh, and get that one fixed. The story here is, is one of uh, eternal civic vigilance. Right.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah. the,
1: the citizens have to be constantly aware of what's going on, and they have to be interested enough to influence political opinion on it, because the forces that have a vested interest in these areas uh, are always interested, and they're always watching. And so when you think you never really win, well, that's a bit extreme, but uh, most conservation stories are ongoing. They're, they're uh, and that's, again, the struggle idea. They're, they're, you have to watch, you have to be interested, you have to have groups to make micropresentation. You have to make sure you're, uh, you're uh, looking after the larger civic or national interest. And the Nahani's is a prime example of that. The start, we started with, with 1945 or 1946, and it's taken from 1945-46 through the first park establishment in 76, and through the uh, to expansion in 209. And we've still got these uh, places that are still contentious, and uh, you have to stay interested in them if you want to make sure that the interests you value are uh, represented well and adhered to.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask you, what do you think the legacy of, of this project is? But I would sure I venture guess that that's what you would say, that it's, it's that the idea of vigilance.
1: Yeah, probably the first thing I would say, that it's not finished yet. You've got to keep at it. It's a remarkable achievement. Uh, it's, uh, it's a testament to everybody involved that they were able to come to an agreement on uh, it. Lots of people are uh, are, 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 un- are both happy and unhappy about it. What is it that the politicians say that if uh, if uh, if everybody's unhappy, they've probably done a good job. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, I I I I wouldn't be a strong proposal of that point of view. But they there was a lot of compromise, and uh, and they're, they're, the compromises are for momentary. They're often done for political reasons, and uh, they're understandable human reactions. And the idea is wait another day, and you might be able to make more progress on what you were trying to do in the first place. So conservation is a dynamic, ongoing process, and uh, that's something that I didn't forcefully make well enough in the book. I did try to make it at the end in uh, looking at other examples of things like this that have been done in other parts of the world. But it's something that's still not really salient in the uh, Canadian mentality or in many other mentalities than it should be.
0: And I think that's you know a, a great way to frame it and have it as a, a lesson, right? There, I think there was an article today or yesterday, uh, I can't remember what outlet it was, but saying that, the the Canadians are sort of per capita the worst in terms of environmental conservation in the world. As Canadians, we have all this land, but perhaps we take it for granted and aren't as serious about conservation as maybe some other countries who aren't as fortunate in the natural landscapes and the 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 things that are are available to them, and therefore we don't take it as seriously as perhaps we should, and maybe that's one of the, the things that we need to take away from this book, that, as you say, it's, it's always being vigilant and always paying attention to how land is used and how, as humans, we can not disrupt the natural order of things as much as humanly possible.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, that, that probably comes back to my prime motivation for writing the book, which was... Uh uh, this is a story, like other stories. Uh, it's a it's a struggle between uh, development and conservation. Those are uh, ideologically pure concepts that, in practice, don't really hold because there's always an interaction between what people are trying to do economically and what is going on environmentally and socially. But. Uh, uh, and that's the uh, human-physical interaction that we were talking about earlier. The other thing that that uh, it brings out, I think, when you start contemplating it, and I wish I'd had a little more time to work with this, but it's a big topic. But we tend to have, uh, as Canadians, we tend to have quite a big uh, view of our virtues. We, we tend to see ourselves as... Uh is perhaps a, a little better in most things than we really are, and uh, again, it, it it needs a little thought to to sort out. But uh, I, I I don't think we tend to see the impacts we have on environment in as realistic terms as we should. We we do really. Uh, well, take water for example. We are prolific in our use of water, and, mm-hmm. and uh, we have all kinds of it. But we forget that we're contaminating it all the time. Right. And. Uh, Water may still be there in the voluminous sense, but in the quality sense, it's probably quite a different matter. We have made good progress in, in in environmental and conservation concerns. Air quality is a good example. But I think our forest policy, our tree policy, and and our parks policy still remain uh, to be strengthened. Uh, they're they're not ideal, and so that gets back again to to the idea of. Uh, of constantly trying to watch them and improve them
0: and and another reason why people should pick up this book and and see what that the the struggle is all about in this case so again the the book is the magnificent nahani the struggle to protect a wild place Uh, from the university of virginia press we encourage you to go to go pick it up it's available in paperback uh, now so that's terrific and the author of course gordon nelson who we are thrilled to have had joined us from Waterloo. So, Gordon, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Uh, You're a challenging interviewer.
0: Thank you. Thank you. I try my best. Uh, If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, slam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.